0: Good morning once again. you welcome. Please rise for prayer. O Christ our God, the giver of light and wisdom, who opened the eyes of the blind man and transformed the fishermen into wise heralds and teachers of the gospel through the coming of the Holy Spirit, shine also in our minds the light of the grace of the Holy Spirit. Grant us discernment, understanding, and wisdom in learning, and to abound in every good work. For to you we give glory and honor. Amen. Welcome once again. Please come forward. going to start out this morning by talking about um, taking my jumping-off point from the transfiguration of our Lord. Do we have an icon of the transfiguration? I guess there's one one up here. It'd be small, you know, it'd be kind of hard to see. It's uh, yeah, yeah, yes, the um, the top row here, not the first to the side of the royal doors, the second one there. There's Peter, James, and John falling down on the ground as Christ is transfigured before them. And it seems to me that's a good um, <clears throat> its a good incident, a good moment in the story of our Lord to associate with prayer. This is why many monasteries are named after the transfiguration, because that's our goal. We want to be transfigured as Christ was. We want the light of Christ, um, of our Heavenly Father within us, so that others can see it and so it can spread to all the world through us uh, with our help if possible. We're going to be talking today about three different spiritual disciplines. So starting with the Transfiguration today to talk about prayer and then a, a shorter little section on fasting. This afternoon we will talk about almsgiving. Those are the three kind of traditional spiritual disciplines, prayer, fasting, almsgiving. I'm going to redefine almsgiving, though, to mean not just giving to the poor, um, but uh, charity, which means love. So we'll talk about just caring for other people, whatever form that might take. It doesn't have to be restricted to giving money to the poor. Um, The transfiguration on a day not very long before his crucifixion. Um, We observe this feast on August the 6th, but according to the church. This occurred 40 days before Jesus' crucifixion. Jesus took his closest disciples, that little circle of Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain. Um, There's some debate about whether it's Mount Tabor or Mount Sinai, and they both compete for that honor. Here's how St. Matthew tells this story. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain apart. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is well that we are here. If you wish, I will make three booths here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when... Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were filled with awe. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Maybe these... Three disciples, Peter, James, and John, they were like the the top circle of Jesus' disciples. Maybe they were used to him taking them apart to talk or for a conference, but they weren't prepared for this. This was an extraordinary and astonishing event. They saw Jesus transfigured before them, his face shone like the sun. They saw Moses and Elijah talking. Peter began to just babble the first excited thing that came to his head, like, let's make this permanent. Let's have three little booths here for all three of you guys. And then this bright cloud overshadowed them. Bright cloud, and they heard the Father's voice. It's no wonder that they fell to the ground, as you see up here, um, overwhelmed and in awe and in fear. And um, when they looked up, when Jesus came and it says Jesus touched them, they looked up, and they were there alone with him again. Two of the eyewitnesses, Peter and John, wrote epistles, and they both refer to this event. Years and years later, thinking, thinking it over, having had a long, long time to think it over. I, I want to say this. It always occurs to me when you say Peter and James and John that Peter and John are so well-known, but James didn't write anything. Now, this is not James, the brother of the Lord. This is James, the brother of John. And he is silent. He doesn't speak in the New Testament. He doesn't write any letters or anything. Um, we know some things about him as his later life due to the, 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 the history of the church, due to the stories that the church has kept alive. But um, why did our Lord choose him? Why was he so important We'll never know, I guess when we get to heaven, we'll know what made this James so significant that Peter, that the Lord chose him to be one of the top three. And the other thing is he didn't choose Andrew. Andrew was the brother of Peter. So he, he got John and James and Peter, not you, Andrew. Why Why not Andrew? Um, Andrew was the, the first one, the first one to see the Lord. He brought his brother too, to meet Jesus. Um, There's just a mystery there. I think Andrew must have been very humble, you know, accepting that he wasn't going to be one of the top three, and James was. um, James was the mystery man who was silent. We'll we'll learn all about that when we get upstairs. But I I wonder about it. Can you hear me all right? Which baby? Oh, it's that one there on the floor. Okay. It's for some reason it sounds like it's on a microphone. So I don't know. I do have a kind of soft voice, but I love hearing the babies. I love the babies in church. <laughs> so Peter and John both wrote epistles that are in the New Testament. And Peter describes what it was like to be there that day and to see the transfiguration. Uh, 2 Peter one sixteen to 18. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain." That's how Peter describes it, and he's describing it much, much later. At the time of the transfiguration, they hadn't gotten to the crucifixion yet. There was so much he didn't know. But when he writes it, he's looking from the other point of view he's been through the last supper his denial at the at the fire at the bonfire the resurrection pentecost he's trying to express from that perspective what was going on that day what happened on the day of Christ's transfiguration so many years before he saw god's glory but he also believes in some mysterious way that that glory is also for us that we are called to be partakers of that same glory that he saw in the Lord on the day of the transfiguration. <clears> 1 <throat> Peter 1, to 3-4, His divine power has granted to us all things and called us to his own glory, that you may escape the corruption that is in the world and become partakers of the divine nature. Partakers of the divine nature. The life that is in Christ will also be in us. It's a very dramatic claim. And um, I heard somebody not long ago say, being, becoming Orthodox is highlighting all those verses that you didn't highlight when you were Protestant. <laughs> and, and certainly this is one of them, that we are called to be partakers of the divine nature. I never noticed that when I was Protestant, never noticed that. And yet it's something that Orthodox refer to on a regular basis, because we do believe that is our destiny. For one thing, because we receive communion. We receive the body and blood of Christ. We are, in a sense, literally partakers, in the sense of eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ. Um, But also we are to be transformed by the presence of the Lord and the power of the Lord within us, partakers of the divine nature. The life that is in Christ will also be in us. And St. John was also there that day. He gives his first letter, an opening sentence, that is beautiful and intricately woven. Um, if you haven't read it for a while, when you go home, look up 1 John 1, 1. Um, those, those opening verses just evolve and evolve. It's a structure that's called chiasmos, which means it's like an X, that it goes and picks this up, and then it comes over here, and then it picks that up again. It's a very poetic and very beautiful verse there. Um, so First John 1, 1 and 5, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light, the light of the transfiguration, the light that Jesus' face shone like the sun. God is light. We say that all the time. It sounds so familiar, God is light. But there's something about light that we everybody who heard this verse through all previous centuries would have thought of that we usually don't think of today. It's something that just doesn't occur to us. We think of light as this, as something that you get by flipping on a light switch. It's easy, it's always at hand. But before 100 years ago, maybe a little more, Light always meant fire. Anytime you read light, you would think fire, you would picture fire. Whether it was a candle flame, an oil lamp, a a campfire, a cooking fire, or the sun itself, the blazing sun on fire in the sky, light was always produced by fire. And people learned while they were very young to respect fire, to treat it with an appropriate degree of fear, That would be one of the lessons that parents taught their dear children from the very beginning. There would be fire around. You would need fire to warm your home, to cook your food, to light you in the darkness. But with little children around, there's so much danger there that it would be emphasized very strongly. And every adult would carry within them that memory of how dangerous fire can be. So useful, it does everything for us, but it has to be treated with respect. That's something that, that lesson that was so deeply learned, I think people would think of that reading the Bible whenever they came across the word light, when they read God as light. Fire is powerful. It is dangerous. It doesn't compromise. In any confrontation, it is the person who will be changed by the fire and not the other way around. As Hebrews 12:29 says, our God is a consuming fire. So anytime you see a reference to light in the scriptures, keep in mind that the author expected that you would picture fire. When the Bible says God is light, 1 John 1.15, it doesn't mean a table lamp. St. John would have had something more dangerous in, in mind. God's light is something that we have to approach with reverent awe, the, the holy fear that the psalmist means when he says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That appropriate holy fear that you would have of fire is the kind of fear you ought to have of the Lord. Psalm 111.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And yet, this consuming fire is not meant to be something that we fear and draw back from. It's something that we yearn for, that we yearn to be part of, that we yearn to bear within us. In some mysterious way, light also means life. Uh, saint john says um, john eleven twenty no John one four in him was life, and the life was the light of men uh, john eleven twenty five Jesus says, I am the life, and he also says, I am the light john eight twelve he is both life and light. Light is life in a sense. we live in light, we could not live without it. In some sense, you could say we, we live on light. It is light energy that plants consume in photosynthesis. And by means of their chlorophyll molecules, they take light and transform it into stem and leaves and flowers. They transform it into their own substance. They do that with light. This is an um, everyday miracle that we just take for granted. It's going on around us all the time. Light is life. Plants transform, transform light into their own life. And when we eat plants, or when we eat animals that eat plants, we are feeding secondhand on light. Light is converted into life with every bite we eat. God designed us to live on light. The fire of God consumes us. God is a consuming fire, and we consume it as well. We consume light. Uh, John 6, 53, the Lord says, Truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. These thoughts help us to understand what it means to be a partaker of the divine nature. Um, Without that, it just seems like a weird mystical thing to say that has no basis in reality. As St. Peter says, partakers of the divine nature we will become one with God, we have oneness with God. It is like we are lumps of coal, just dusty, inert, you know, plain coal. We don't have a lot to boast about in ourselves. But coal has one talent, it can take on light, it can burn. That's the one thing coal is really good at, it can burn. You could say it is the destiny of coal to burn. When God made the human race, he created us capable of taking on the fire of God, taking on his presence and his light just as a lump of coal can be filled with fire. This union with God or assimilation with God is called theosis. I don't know Hebrew, but um, somebody who does told me the, that line that it says, we make, God in his, we make man in our image and likeness. Um, the word for likeness in, in Hebrew means assimilation. It doesn't mean just resembling in a sense like you, there's a painting and you make a copy. It's actually an assimilation, sharing in the very life of it. So we are, we are made that way. It is our destiny. St. Athanasius said, God became man so that man could become God. The whole purpose of Christ coming to earth, the reason God became man, was to deliver us from our bondage to sin and to death and restore us to our intended destiny to become light bearers. This union with God, this assimilation, is called theosis. In English, the word is usually rendered deification or divinization, but that's not quite right because it sounds like it might mean that you're going to become a miniature God and have your own little universe to populate. Uh, it's better to picture the lump of coal being filled with fire. That's what deification or theosis means. Theosis is a compound word. It's made up of theos, which means God, and the suffix osis, which means a process, like metamorphosis or tuberculosis or osteoporosis. Osis means a process. Osmosis, the process of osmosis, as you Learned long ago in school is if you have a white cloth and you put the end of it into some red dye, by the process of osmosis, the red will creep up through the cloth as it's absorbed upwards. The process of osmosis, the process of saturation, likewise, humans are saturated with God's presence in the process of theosis. This process was God's plan from the very beginning. It was what he intended us for he created us in his image and likeness able to choose in our love for him in obedience to him able to choose to be increasingly filled with his glory but when our ancestors adam and eve fell sin and death invaded human life and it enslaved us christ came to earth to take on human nature and heal it within himself heal it by his presence He came to break into the realm of death and set the captives free. So perhaps St. John is reflecting on the experience on Mount Tabor when he writes uh, 1 John 3, 2, It does not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. That is our destiny. We shall be like him. Um, Not just uh, like asking yourself, what would Jesus do in trying to copy him? but actually assimilating and sharing in the divine nature, partaking of the divine nature. We accept and we cooperate with this process of transformation in so many ways. There are so many things the Church provides for us to help this happen. Um, There are resources like the Eucharist, which most of you received this morning, going to confession, the prayers of the saints, asking the saints to help us, to be with us, the reading of Scripture alone. There's so many things like that. Using those resources that God has given to the Church and the Church gives to us, we can gradually be healed and cleansed and become increasingly able to bear the light of Christ. These resources work by cleansing us of every impurity. They clear away everything in us that would not catch fire. They get rid of all the impurities so that we can be wholehearted bearers of the light of Christ in this darkening world around us. It's like there are impurities in that lump of coal, and the tools that the Church gives us are there to get the impurities out, getting rid of everything that will not catch fire with the light of Christ. Traditionally, there are three main spiritual disciplines that we use in our private lives, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. So we'll talk about prayer and fasting. This morning, this afternoon, we'll talk about almsgiving in the sense, the broader sense of charity, kindness to others. But we'll begin by talking about prayer. Uh, When I say prayer, of course, there are many different kinds of prayer that we engage in all week long. Many different things come to mind. There are the prayers we offer in church during worship. There are the intercessions that we offer for our friends and our family. They're the prayers that we make when we ask a saint to intercede for us. There's the blessing we give over a meal. I want to focus on, out of all of that, I just want to pull out the Jesus prayer as one particular spiritual discipline that is just about invaluable. It's so useful in this process of transformation. St. Paul said that we should pray constantly. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 But that's not the only place he said it. He said that in four different letters to four different communities. And so he must have thought that it was important, you know, if he kept repeating this over and over again. And he must have thought that it was possible. I I often find when I speak with non-Orthodox Christians that they think Paul was just being metaphorical. But I think that it is possible. Because he keeps insisting on it over and over again. I think St. Paul knew what it was to live in constant communion with the Lord. I think he practiced ceaseless prayer. So I think that's something that we should be alert to, that he says we should strive for this. We should seek to be able to pray constantly. But how do you do that? If you've ever tried, as I, as I tried my Protestant days, I would think I'm going to pray constantly. But almost immediately, you notice that you've gotten distracted and you're thinking about other things. Your mind just keeps on wandering. It's very hard, no matter how sincere your intentions are, to keep focused on prayer all the time. Well, in the second and third centuries of our church, men and women went out into the deserts of Egypt and Palestine to try to figure out how to do that, try to put St. Paul's words into effect. They wanted to figure out how to pray constantly. And they soon realized the reason it's hard to keep praying constantly is because our, our thoughts wander, they wander away. Other thoughts come in and distract us. So the desert elders recognized that you combat a thought with a different thought. You needed a different thought that you could hang on to, that could be like base in a game of tag, that you could keep going back to and grab onto this particular thought to get yourself stable and balanced and upright again. And they tried different things. Uh, The Jesus prayer wasn't arrived at immediately. For a few centuries, they tried um, prayers not asking for mercy, but for help. Jesus, help me. Short little arrow prayers like that, mostly asking for help. Or some people would take their favorite Bible verse, their favorite verse of Scripture, and just try to keep repeating that in the back of their mind all the time. And the goal was that in time the prayer would become automatic. It would become like the background music of your life, that the prayer was going on all, all the time in the back of your mind and keep you subtly aware of the presence of God. It, they tried many different things, as I said, and it's about the year 500 that the Jesus Prayer in its form that we use now first appears. The words of the Jesus Prayer are, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. It can change a little bit. It can be shorter. It can be longer. Um, The way I say it is, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me, a sinner, taking those last uh, few words from the publican in the temple, have mercy on me, a sinner. Um, My husband says, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, echoing um, St. Peter's affirmation when Jesus said, Who do you say I am? He said, You're the Son of the living God. So um, people end up with slightly different formulations. But the bottom line is, it's always calling on the name of the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ, and then asking him for mercy. To say Lord Jesus Christ is already a prayer because you're you are calling him Lord, you're acknowledging that he is your Lord. When you say Jesus, you say that you're talking about a specific person, that God became a human being in the history of mankind. You know, they died under Pontius Pilate, a very specific human life lived at a particular point in time. And to say Christ is to make the very daring claim that he is the Messiah, Messiah is the Hebrew form, and Christ is the Greek form of the same term, which means anointed. He's the anointed one, Lord Jesus Christ. Um, Sometimes I speak in contexts where I'm not sure everybody's a Christian, and I emphasize that if you're not ready to call Jesus Christ your Lord, then why do you want to say this prayer? It's not a good idea to say insincere prayers. If you're addressing God, you need to be sincere, so... Maybe you need to think about this a little bit more and not take it up as just a way to be relaxed or something, some kind of self-flattering, I'm going to be a wonderful spiritual person kind of motivation. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. Um, and I think this, was, this troubled me when I was newly Orthodox. Because I thought, why do we keep asking for mercy all the time? Like we're really afraid that God is so angry at us and he's going to damn us to hell. And we have to keep pleading with him to forgive our sins and be lenient with us. Um, the, we say, Lord, have mercy a lot during worship. And say it three times or 12 times or sometimes 40 times or 100 times. or well, I forget which service it is in Holy Week, but we say four groups of 100 Lord have mercies, 400 times in one service. Um, yeah, so it bothered me. I thought that this is, a, um, this is, it just sounds like groveling. And I came to understand that mercy in the New Testament has a different meaning. It's not about the, the criminal begging the judge to be lenient. When people ask Jesus for mercy in the Gospels, they're asking for his compassion. They're asking for his help. It's blind Bartimaeus by the side of the road in Matthew eighteen. It's the Syrophoenician woman who begs the Lord to have mercy on her and heal her daughter. All these cries for mercy are from people who knew that they needed mercy. They needed help. They're asking for the mercy of Christ is something he already has. He's already having mercy on us. We don't have to remind him to have mercy. It's the prayer helps us have a position, acquire a position, a habitual position of, of humility, of recognizing that we need mercy, that we are poor and needy, and that we need the Lord's deliverance and help and sustenance. We need the Lord's transformation. We keep asking for mercy because we need mercy, and that reminds us that that is what, I, what we need. It's a, it's a humble prayer prayer that makes you more humble. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me is the standard form. As I said, you might say it a little longer, a little shorter. You can vary it so it fits, uh, fits for you. The fact that it's a short prayer, a little short prayer, that has a lot of advantages to it. Um, for one thing, it is short, so you're not going to have any trouble remembering it. It's short. It's unobtrusive. You can say it anywhere at work while you're out shopping, while you're waiting at a, a red light, and eventually it becomes a habit and begins to say itself, so to speak. It starts going in the back of your mind, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy on me. You say it while you're going to sleep, you say it when you wake up, it's already there. It might, might sound like I'm saying that it's an effortless prayer, it's not effortless. It is a, a struggle against your own wandering mind to develop the habit. It takes practice. It's a spiritual discipline. It truly is a discipline. And it takes some effort to acquire the Jesus Prayer as a habit. So although you, uh, you want to say it constantly, so you should be saying it any time you think of it, um, you probably also want to spend some time just practicing. Set aside five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever seems right to you, and do nothing except say the Jesus Prayer for a while if you want to acquire this habit. Um, I'd like to have, before I go on to the next part today, um, about a two-minute practice where we just say the Jesus Prayer together, and I will get us started with a few repetitions, and then at the end of the two minutes I'll bring us back together again with a few repetitions. And um, if if you don't want to (laughs) spend these two minutes saying the Jesus Prayer, please feel free to do something else. I'm not going to compel anybody that they have to pray if they're not in the mood for praying or they're not comfortable with it. If you're going to have a practice time every day, this is, these are some of the standard things you do and some of which you're already doing. First, it's a prayer you say sitting down. Most of our liturgical prayers, we're standing up. Occasionally, we have prayers where we kneel. The Jesus prayer is traditionally when you, you pray while you are seated. And uh, some of the um, the fathers say you should be seated on a low stool. Of course, they didn't really have chairs then. They had stools and benches, but only a king, you know, would have a chair with a back to it and arms. So you're, you're seated, and um, the fathers, some of them say, rest your beard on your chest, which I can't demonstrate for you today. <laughs> you get the idea. Um, bowing your head and um, directing your eyes as if you are looking at your heart. Your eyes are closed, but it's as if you're looking into your own heart. The process of this prayer, over time, as you keep practicing it, you'll discover that it changes from being something that's just in your head to being a prayer that's actually reverberating and repeating itself in your heart. So you sit down, you quiet yourself, bow your head, start repeating the prayer. Um, you'll find the version of it that works best for you. You can try it shorter, longer, vary, vary the words a little bit. Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy, would be the shortest shortest version. We'll be saying it silently here, but when you're practicing it, you could whisper it, you could say it under your breath. Sometimes when I'm really busy around the house, I start saying it out loud. Um, you'll, you'll hear monks and nuns doing this at monasteries sometimes as they go about doing their assigned work. They'll be saying the prayer under their breath. It comes, you know, from your mouth, your ears hear it, and it reinforces itself inside of you. When you practice it at home, you can do it for a period of time, or you can use a a prayer rope, counting the knots to keep track of the repetitions. When your mind wanders, and it will wander, you'll probably discover that it has wandered. You don't really, you don't notice when it takes off. When you notice your mind has wandered, just bring it back to the prayer, but don't get stressed about it, don't get angry at yourself because that makes it worse. Um, Just just calmly bring it back to the words of the prayer again and know that everybody's mind wanders and it takes a lot of practice to get the hang of this. So let's practice the Jesus prayer for two minutes and then we'll come back and talk a little bit more about it. Sip of water <clears throat> Lord Jesus Christ have mercy on me Lord Jesus Christ son of god have mercy on me Lord Jesus Christ son of god have mercy on me a sinner Lord Jesus Christ son of god have mercy on me Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. All right. Um, Many of you, I'm sure, have already been practicing the Jesus Prayer, maybe maybe for years, maybe longer than I have. Uh, But when you get a little taste of it like that, you you can sense how it works. You can use so many words trying to explain it, but when you practice it, you get more of an idea of how it works. At first, it feels external. It feels like a, a habit you're trying to form, and so you keep trying to keep your mind on the track. You mostly are saying it with your head, with your active mind. Um, there's a, it's a little bit confusing when we talk about head and heart, in orthodoxy, it has a different meaning in the scriptures and in the orthodox faith than we, than we have in the West. We think of head as your reason and heart as your, um, as your emotions. And the, the human person is divided up differently in the scriptures. Your heart is where everything is. Your heart is where your, your history and your willpower and your memories and your reasoning ability and your emotions, everything, that's like the center of your being, the center of your whole being is your heart. And the mind is associated with reasoning, but not the, the Western ideal of human reason being the highest part of the human person and being pure and untouchable. There's more skepticism about our ability to reason in the scriptures. Um, when, the, um, when the Magnificat, when the Theotokos says, he has scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts, Uh, That is the the word for reasoning, dianoia. It's the word for thinking something through, uh, which often means scheming rather than thinking lofty thoughts about philosophy. So that the head is like this this conscious driven and sometimes scheming and self-serving part of you. And as you keep practicing the Jesus Prayer, gradually it drops down into your authentic being, the center where the you of you resides in your heart and becomes something that sort of saturated you and that you're instinctively repeating. It's become your own prayer. This is what the um, fathers mean when they say the prayer descends into the heart. That's something you can't force to happen, but with practice, um, it finds its own way there. The Holy Spirit opens the heart and and you find that that is working for you. This is not a mantra. It's not a magic formula. It's not something that people should say just to become spiritually elevated or to have a spiritual experience or become mystics. If it's used for a purpose of pride, then it totally backfires. That's the danger we keep reading about in the Fathers is that an ambitious monk, an ambitious monk will start practicing these spiritual disciplines in order to advance beyond his fellow monks and be admired. That's how something like the Jesus Prayer could be, frankly, detrimental and, and very dangerous to a person. I, we don't have a lot of problem with that in America in our contemporary life. We're not, you know, trying to be the best monk in the monastery. So I think that's not a danger we usually have. But I do warn against it, because, um, you know, there's some times that I've spoken about the Jesus Prayer in contexts that we're not specifically Christian. And so I just got in the habit of making that warning. To say Lord Jesus Christ is to make a proclamation of faith. And I always say to people, if you, um, if you can't say that, then don't say the prayer. If you can't say that sincerely from your heart, if that would be a lie, then why do it? You know, to, to be insincere in your prayers is a terrible thing. So say Lord Jesus Christ if you can really mean it, if it's really the truth for you. It's, um, I remember Father Roman Braga, who's, who's my Romanian friend I met last night, who showed me a photo of Father Calciu on her phone, maybe not here this morning. Oh, she's in the kitchen, God bless her. <laughs> maybe she can hear me, I hope so. Um, another one of the, um, the courageous elders of the communist persecution in Romania was Father Roman Braga, who was at the Dormition Monastery in uh, Michigan until his death a few years ago. And Father Roman said that he once had somebody from a different tradition come up to him and say, how many times do I have to say the Jesus prayer before I can see the uncreated light? And it's that kind of almost monetary way of treating it. He He said to the person, do not say that prayer anymore. Just don't say it. You're doing so wrong, I'm not even going to try to explain it to you. Just don't say that prayer. (laughs) So if you can say it with a sincere heart, the Lord so rewards that. There's a saying that saying the Jesus Prayer will teach you how to say the Jesus Prayer. And I've really found that to be true. When I started in uh, 1995, I set aside a little time when I got up to pray, um, Hopefully you have a prayer time every day. Forty-something years ago, I formed the habit of getting up in the middle of the night and praying. Because it's quiet and there's not going to be any phone calls or any little kids or anything. Sometimes they're little kids. When they go back to sleep, have your prayer time. Um, I found that to be a really rich time to pray. But whenever your prayer time is, when you first start doing it, as it was for me, I felt like, is this doing anything? I'm just saying these words. I I don't feel the presence of Jesus. I don't know what to expect. But over time, it began to make sense. It's like my body and my mind came into sync with it. And it began to feel like second nature. And I began to sense, as I said the prayer, I could feel the Lord listening. I could feel his presence. Um, like when you're, when you're speaking to someone... Um, I said to my grandchildren, do you know how when, if it's something really important, the teacher needs to know, you know, like at at recess, and you go up to the teacher and you're trying to get her attention, and you're talking, but she's just off somewhere else, or talking to another teacher. Um, But then you get her attention, and she looks at you, and she looks you in the eye, and you just feel this openness, and she's paying full attention to what you're saying, How does that change your feeling inside your own body? For one thing, you relax a little bit, and you feel like you're opening up. You know, it feels like it's safe because you're getting this wonderful attention. And that's a little bit what it's like, kind of the same process of the prayer descending into the heart, that it becomes heartfelt. It becomes sincere. It becomes not just 2% or 5% of your attention, but a much larger percent of your attention. And just as they could sense the teacher listening to them, you begin to get that sense of the Lord listening to you. Unlike the teacher, he's already listening all the time. We're just not very good at perceiving it. So it's like tuning that little radio that I talked about last night. You become more and more able to sense that presence and sense that response. So, um, it's hard at first. It feels like you're just going through the motions. You're just being obedient. You're just doing it because you said you would do it. So you sit down for five minutes or 10 minutes every day. You sit down with your prayer rope of 50 or 100 knots, and you go through it. And you can't tell from how things feel while you're praying if you're praying rightly. The way you tell is if in the rest of your life, You're becoming a more loving person. So you just keep doing it even if you're not feeling anything. And that is, I believe that is what is meant when we say a sacrifice of praise. A sacrifice of praise. That you do it even if you don't feel like it. You do it if you're bored. You do it if you're thinking about something else. If you'd much rather be doing something else. You keep sacrificing your will. You're sacrificing your willingness To stand by the Lord, to address him, to do what you said you were going to do. You just do it even if you're not feeling anything at the time. And that sacrifice is so precious because it's a sign of your your humility. It means that you're willing to bow before the Lord, to recognize his lordship, even if you don't feel anything at all. And you will discipline yourself. You will be like the athlete, as Saint Paul says in several places, the athlete that strives for the prize and that keeps disciplining himself to win the race. I believe that when you when you say your prayers and you really don't feel like saying your prayers, I think that's a particularly precious offering to the Lord. Um, when you're when you're doing that, you can feel sort of desolate, like what am I doing? But know how. Really precious that is, that you're willing to pray. You do what you said you would do, even if you don't feel like doing it. That's a, um, that, I think, is a very effective prayer when it comes to bending your will and shaping your will so it conforms to the will of God. Another thing you'll find is that the, um, the prayer has an unexpected benefit in terms of giving you perspective on your own thoughts, the thoughts you're having during the rest of the day. Um, How much of our suffering and our confusion on this earth is due to thoughts that attack us, thoughts that make us miserable? The Jesus Prayer is able to give you some control over your own thoughts so that you can choose whether or not you're going to entertain them. The Jesus Prayer helps you to gain that control so you're not at their mercy, as you might otherwise be. I don't, I don't only mean when you're saying the prayer. I mean all the time. It like spills over into your thought life 24 hours a day. You know, there's a part of your mind that watches your mind. There's a part of your mind that when you, you have a thought and then this part says, well, that's stupid. You know? <laughs> there, there's a thought of your mind that evaluates your thoughts, you know, as your thoughts go by. It's, it's making a commentary. It's like there's a little island of objectivity inside of you that keeps you from being totally swept away by your thoughts, It you evaluates them and decides whether or not it's worthwhile to go on thinking that thought. What the Jesus Prayer does, in my experience, it makes that little island of objectivity bigger. It gets bigger, it gets more stable, it gets easier for you to find at any time during the day when you need to say, wait a minute, you know, that's, that's a really bad thought. Is that a thought that's important? Should I be thinking that? It gives you space to, um, to see the thoughts as they're approaching. Um, one of the fathers said it was like it stands guard at the gate of your mind, gate of your heart, and makes the thoughts stop and prove themselves, prove whether they are worthy to come into your, into your mind. It gives you a little bit of breathing space. For example, maybe there's a, like a really frightening thought that pops into your mind. Formerly, it would just make you miserable. Now you find you can think, wait a minute, is that even true? Does that make sense at all? Uh, maybe it's a bad memory. So many of us have bad memories that really torment and afflict us. As, as this island of objectivity grows, you can think, you know what? That, that happened a long time ago. It has no relevance to my current life. I've already spent a lot of time feeling miserable thinking about that. I'm not going to think about it anymore. I, I told my husband once, I said, I was I was praying and a thought was really bothering me. And so I prayed, I said, Lord, just take that memory away. I don't want to ever remember that again. And my husband said, Does that work? <laughs> and and I said, How would I know? <laughs> So this is not the purpose of the Jesus Prayer, but it's part of, I think, the whole process of becoming interiorly united and and cleansed and getting the impurities out and becoming stronger. Your mind gets stronger, and you get better at managing your thoughts and not just being knocked over by them. St. Peter said that the evil one prowls about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The, the evil one wants to capture us and drag us away back into the kingdom of death. So he throws temptations at us. So we will sin and we will get sicker and feel like we have to flee from God. Since sin begins with a thought, his first trick is to offer us a distracting and appealing thought and hope that we will embrace it and without even questioning it. So the Jesus Prayer in helping you gain more control over your thoughts, also helps you gain more resistance to sin. Sin always begins with a thought. You imagine doing something. And this gives you that expanded area of evaluation where you say, I'm not gonna think about that. I'm not gonna follow that thought. Many of the, um, many of the thoughts we have are just the evil one throwing arrows at us to see if anything will stick. They're not even really our thoughts. They're thoughts that come from the outside. One time I was um, when I was up in the night and praying, <clears throat> I suddenly started having thoughts about of doubt. Like doubting, is there really a God? And am I just wasting my time? And you know, does this make any sense? And all those desolate thoughts. And instantly I started praying, Lord save me, Lord save me, rescue me, take me away from this. I was so afraid of, of beginning to doubt. And then I thought, wait a minute. If my first response to a doubt is to flee to the Lord and embrace him and say, help me, help me, then I don't really doubt, do I? You know, it's instinctive to me. I I am not doubting. This is not my thought. This is not an organic thought that grew out of my own garden. This is a thought that was thrown at me from the outside. And uh, again, as you pray the Jesus Prayer and your ability to see your thoughts coming, get stronger and more accurate. Um, you'll start noticing that, that you have thoughts sometimes that really aren't your thought. Be comforted by that. What's the pre-communion prayer where it says, I, I stand before the gates of your temple, yet I do not put away my evil thoughts, not even here. Um, many of us are shocked sometimes at the hideous thoughts that will come to us. Just know that that's not your thought. That's a thought that the devil is throwing at you just to upset you. So you don't have to feel bad. How could that thought come out of me? Maybe it didn't come out of you. Maybe it was just thrown at you. And, you know, you can just push it to the side and keep going, keep your focus on the Lord. So that's the value of the Jesus prayer. We could talk just as long about liturgical prayer or intercessory prayer or the prayer of the saints. The church has given us so many wonderful tools. This is a particular one that, Sometimes people try it and it doesn't feel like they can't tell what's going on. It, you know, I just want to give a little more talk and encouragement about it today. We will have a discussion group, and then I think the idea is after lunch, another session. I, I think we're saving the Q&A until, are we saving until after everything? All right, so you'll have a, a proposed question in your discussion group about the Jesus Prayer. You'll have time to talk about this, and then, then we'll go to lunch. Do it all over again this afternoon before the Q&A. So that's why the prayer, the Jesus prayer, is one of the many prayers of the church that is the first of the three spiritual disciplines we'll talk about today. Um, A little more briefly, because there's not nearly as much to be said about it, the second of the big three, prayer, fasting, almsgiving. It's fasting. Spiritual disciplines like fasting are designed to strengthen our ability to resist temptation. Because, they, because we're a body-mind unity, those are not two separate things, what exercises the body will also bear fruit in our will, our emotions, our thoughts. This kind of effort, like fasting, is called ascetic. In biblical Greek, that was the word for training an athlete or an apprentice learning a craft. That was ascesis. The adjective is ascetic. It's like an athlete that's challenging himself, making himself stronger, lifting weights or running laps. You'd say that asceticism is athleticism. It's a training in spiritual athletics. Saint Paul writes Philippians three twelve forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 9.25, Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we am imperishable. Um, If you came out of a Protestant tradition, then, like me, I thought that this was very suspect, that if you were really working hard at a spiritual discipline, obviously it meant that you didn't believe God had forgiven your sins. It was that that totally um, kind of money-based, commerce-based view of salvation, where when you sin, you get in debt to God, and then you have to pay it off. And Jesus paid the whole thing. Jesus paid everything. So if you're anxious about remembering to fast, trying to stick to your fast, um, the, the guess would be that that meant you didn't really believe that God had forgiven you. We have a completely different view of salvation, as you know. Um, We believe that Christ came to earth, died, in order to go into Hades and destroy the power of the devil so that we could get free. We believe that God forgives us because he forgives us. He didn't have to be paid off. There's no standard outside of God that had to be met before God was able to forgive us. He just forgives us. He loves us, so he forgives us like we would forgive our our children, like we're supposed to forgive each other. You know, even in the Lord's Prayer, we say, forgive us our debts as in the same way that we forgive those who are our debtors or who trespass against us. So if you were going to say, we are supposed to forgive the same way God forgives, if you believe God can't forgive without being paid off, then we'd have to say, wait a minute, before I can forgive you, you've got to do something to make it up to me. There has to be some kind of remuneration. You know, if, if I just accepted that somebody stepped on my foot and I didn't make them pay me a quarter, you know, um, then that would be unbalancing, you know, the eternal balance of justice or something. So we have a different view than I had as a Protestant of what salvation is. God forgives us just like we forgive those whom we love. He loves us, He forgives us. There's no payment. So this kind of ascetic struggling and striving that St. Paul is talking about has to do with strengthening ourselves in the inner man, as he says, in our spirit and our souls, so that we can resist sin better. Why do we want to resist sin? Should we sin so that grace may abound, as St. Paul said? Of course not. Of course we don't do that. We want to resist sin because it hurts us, and it hurts other people. It darkens us darkens our minds and our souls so that we can't see the Lord as clearly. So we want to be strong enough to resist sin. We, we all share in it. Sin is like, um, it's like air pollution, you know, that we all, every day we contribute to it, but we also suffer from it. Sin hurts us, and we also, putting our sin out into the world, we hurt other people. And of course, the innocent are going to suffer the most. This question, it's often been called the, the one most persistent question of Christianity, is if God is all-powerful and all-good, how can he allow the innocent to suffer? And uh, it torments Western Christianity of every sort. But I had been Orthodox for many years before I noticed that it just never comes up, as you read the fathers, as you read contemporary fathers and mothers of the faith. Nobody ever talks about this tormenting question of how can the innocent suffer if God is good and all-powerful. And I realize the answer, you know, Orthodox don't worry about that because we have an answer to that question. The answer is this happens because of my sin, because of the evil things that I do. I, can, I contribute to the strength of the evil one. I empower the evil one by enlisting in his army by my sins. And, of course, he's going to turn around and use it on the most innocent because that distresses me. That distresses all of us so much. He gets to enjoy seeing an innocent suffer, and at the same time he gets to enjoy seeing Christians so worried and miserable about that. And if he's, if he's really lucky, he could make somebody lose their faith over it. So of course he's going to immediately turn to the innocent and make them suffer first. That's why we feel very strongly about being able to resist sin, trying to resist sin, being that athletic, ascetic struggler that's getting stronger and stronger. Fasting is actually a very, very ancient Orthodox Christian discipline, and we see it mentioned in one of the very very first of the Christian documents. Um, at the same time that St. Matthew and St. Luke were being written, about 80, 80 A.D., rhymes, (laughs) 80 A.D., um, there was another text written that was called the Didache. That's D-I-D-A-C-H-E, the Didache. means teaching. It was called The Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. The Didache is a collection of, um, it's, it's just like information about how Christians live, what we do, how we baptize, how we have communion. Um, and other customs about prayer. It says, for example, three times a day, say the Lord's Prayer. You know, that's one of the things that Christians were doing at the time the New Testament was still being written. So you should be stopping for prayer three times a day, saying the Lord's Prayer, if nothing more than that. If that's what they could do in the very first century, we should at least be doing that as well. The Didache also says, oh, and I should say this because The media tries to convince us that everything in the New Testament are the only legitimate documents, and if it's a document that isn't in the New Testament, therefore it's Gnostic or challenges Christianity or something. It doesn't. There's a huge volume of writings that are small-o Orthodox Christian, as well as large-o, and they're perfectly good, they just didn't get in the New Testament because it was not thought that they were written by an apostle. That was one of the standards. It had to be personally written by an apostle. St. Saint, Saint Mark, for example, it's what St. Peter dictated to St. Mark. So it has to be written by an apostle, and the Didache must, be, must have been one of them that they thought suspected it probably wasn't. But it was still a text that was treasured. It's like if you go in a Christian bookstore, you know, there's the Bibles, and then there's all this other stuff. There's... Bible commentaries and letters and novels and visions and all kinds of things going on. How to live, that would be the section the Didache would be shelved under. How do you do this? How do you live a daily Christian life? So the Didache, in addition to saying, say, the Our Father three times a day, it says, do not observe the fasts of the Jews, for they fast on the second and the fifth day of the week. They fast on Monday and Thursday." And you remember uh, in Jesus' parable, the Pharisee and publican, the Pharisee says, I fast twice a week. So that's what they were doing at the time of Christ. They would fast on Monday and Thursday. That was Luke 18, 12. So the Didache says, don't do those fasts. Instead, um, oh, where is it? I've lost my place. Instead, fast on the fourth day, Wednesday, and the preparation, preparation for the Sabbath was Friday. So instead, we fast on Wednesday and Friday instead of Monday and Thursday. Um, That's something we still do as Orthodox Christians. It's kind of amazing to think that this goes back to the time the New Testament was still being written, this fasting on Wednesday and Friday, all this time. We've been doing that for 2,000 years now, fasting on Wednesday and Friday. About the year 200, Um, the early Christian writer, Tertullian, writes about what the Christian fast entails. It's not not eating anything at all. It's not an absolute or complete fast. He says it's like abstaining from rich foods the way Daniel did in the king's court in Babylon. The story of Daniel says that he and his friends ate only plain foods. They ate bread and vegetables, and they didn't eat all the rich foods the other young men were eating and they became more strong and more healthy than the other young men at the court. The expectations of the orthodox fast sound so complicated to people who haven't heard of it before, so I find it easier easier just to say it's a vegan diet, that we have no dairy, no fish, no meat products. And obviously we don't refuse those foods because we think they are inherently bad or unclean (coughs) foods. If that was the case, then we wouldn't start eating them again on the holiest days of the year. Uh, No, it's just a means of self-control. You're just trying to exercise that self-control muscle. If you can turn down eating a cheeseburger on a Friday, then you'll be stronger to restrain your anger at somebody who cuts you off in traffic. You're strengthening that self-control muscle by fasting from these rich and delicious foods. We keep the fast on Wednesday and Friday, and also during the four Lents of the year, including the Great Lent that comes before Pascha. And it's important that it not be treated as just a rule or an obligation, but rather a form of exercise. If you don't exercise, if you don't go out for your daily run, then you're the loser. You know, it doesn't really cost anybody else if you don't fast, but you're the one that misses out because you're not getting stronger that day. And it's, of course, always important to to say that there are people who just aren't able to fast. Their their health would not tolerate it. Perhaps they can do another fast. Perhaps, you know, on Wednesday and Friday you don't look at Facebook or something. Um, This is definitely an ask your priest, you know, (laughs) AYP, ask your priest uh, situation and get his personal guidance about uh, how you ought to be handling the fast if it's not something you can do for for biological, medical reasons. if you notice somebody else is not keeping the fast, don't spend any time thinking about it. Don't gossip about it or judge the person. This is a good example of when we should judge not. You don't know what's going on in the other person's life. You don't know what factors they're dealing with. They may have a medical condition they're not talking about yet. Um, so it's just none of, none of your business. I, I think, though, there is something that's good about keeping the fast in that we encourage each other that if you're at coffee hour and all the foods are fasting foods and everybody else is eating these fasting foods, it's kind of like comrades in the trenches. You know, they're going through what I'm going through. They're just striving to keep the fast the way I am. We encourage each other. And um, I know a priest for whom not insisting on the fast is so important that when I went there during Lent, there was not just dairy on the table but even meat. You know, there were like sub sandwiches with meat on them during Great Lent, when I was down to lead a retreat. And he just has gone so far to the side of, I never want anybody to feel like they're obligated to fast. But I think it begins to undermine the resolve of the people who are trying to fast. So that's a a balance that needs to be weighed very carefully. When I was growing up, I was a Catholic as a child, and we used to give something up for Lent, like candy or watching TV or something like that. you were allowed to have it again on Sundays because Sundays were not counted as part of Lent. <coughs> so that that's really a different way of looking at fasting. It's um, like a little, a little bit of a, I don't know, like repressing yourself, but just in this very small way. I, I came to see how good it is that we are all united on the same goal, that it's not this person's giving up chewing gum and this person's giving up a particular TV show. They were all doing the same thing. It doesn't really matter that the foods didn't make sense to me at all. You know, I was thinking, why why this? Why is this allowed? But that isn't. I was on a road trip once and I went in the gas station, Mart, and I was just reading labels everywhere. Even the popcorn has cheese in it and the potato chips have cheese on them. and It was just, I couldn't, I found... Little Debbie oatmeal cakes. I thought, how can this be fasting? When I don't get this at all. But it's it's that willingness to do what the whole community is doing. I think that's the benefit there. It's it's not the kind of food that has you know benefits to it or, or has deficits to it. It's just being part of the community, working together toward the same goal. Um, if you can't. Keep the fast perfectly. As I said, talk to your priest. Don't feel bad about it. You have your own things you're struggling with. Um, We're just looking toward the same goal together, and each of us does what we're trying to do. It binds us together so that we're all supporting each other. As strange as the fast initially appeared when I was newly Orthodox, I just felt like I have no idea what this is. I came to love it, and so many converts to Orthodoxy do that when you see great Lent approaching on the calendar, there's a mixture of dread (laughs) and excitement. You know, my husband would always, as it's approaching, he would say to the congregation, Lent is coming like a freight train. Um, The choir director finally said, I feel like I'm gonna be knocked down and run over by this freight train, (laughs) but it's coming, it's coming on the calendar, this momentous thing that we're all gonna participate (coughs) in together. And uh, it's invigorating. It's like a lively kind of a challenge that's given to us, and you can you can come to really appreciate those those challenges, the wisdom that is in the fast. So we're going to go into our discussion in just a minute. I'll just conclude by saying that for Orthodox Christians, salvation is indeed a path of healing. Like the Jesus prayer helps us to heal our minds, our, the fasting helps us to heal our body. Impulses and desires, and bring them under our own control. We may not realize how weak we are unless we see how hard it is to resist temptation. We are helpless, we're sick, we're lost. And we may not realize that until we begin going into prayer, prayer and fasting, these disciplines that show us what we're really made of, which might be less than we thought we were made of. And because we were so helpless, the Father sent His Son to rescue us, um, not, not a payment so that justice is balanced, but a rescue mission. I forget, uh, I know that it's in the movie, the, the book The Four Feathers. I don't remember, I think this is something I've run into though in, in movies before where one of the good guys gets arrested and he's in prison and the hero does something in order to get arrested so he can go into the prison and set his friend free. And that's like what happened when Christ went into Hades to save us. That's the, that's the way it is. He's our dynamic hero that rescues us. It was a cost that we cannot even imagine what that cost was inside of the Lord as he went through the crucifixion. He came to free us from the power of sin and death. And sin is, is so evil and so damaging, and damaging to the weakest among us, God hates sin like the parents of a leukemia victim hate leukemia, like they hate cancer. It's that kind of hatred because he loves us so much, and he sees us enslaved to our sin. And he does everything he can. Did not cease to do everything that was necessary, as Father said this morning in the communion prayers. He does everything necessary, even to dying, in order to rescue us from the hold of sin and death and the evil one. The spiritual disciplines of the church are designed to help us grow stronger, to resist sin, whether it's prayer or fasting, or being charitable toward others, like we'll talk about this afternoon. Whether we've been diligent in using these spiritual disciplines or been preoccupied with other things, it's never too late to get started on it. Perhaps we haven't actually fallen away from the faith, but we've been practicing these things in a lukewarm way. Just doing enough to get by, just to fulfill the the minimum requirement. And not expecting or um, planning to do anything more than that minimum. God always wants more. He always wants more out of you. He wants all of you. He wants us to be made one with him. He wants us to be filled with his presence. And he doesn't rest in trying to call us into that deeper relationship. He keeps calling us toward himself if our response to him till now has been just sort of lukewarm, let this be the day that you turn around and you dedicate yourself wholeheartedly to the love of God, to transformation in God, to loving him as he deserves to be loved. I'm going to conclude with this story about St. Herman of Alaska. Some of you may know this. St. Herman was a Russian of the mid-18th century who heard that there were There were people in Alaska who did not know about Jesus. A call went out for missionaries. Um, He made the journey over 8,000 miles to go from his monastery in present-day Finland all the way across Siberia to the edge and crossed the Bering Strait and went across to present-day Kodiak. Um, It was astonishing. He was a wonderful um, evangelist and a healer, and not even a priest, just a simple monk, um, he went to bring the gospel to the Native Americans there. So he was living in, on an island in a little small skeet. For a time, he was just had a hole in the ground. He just dug a hole and lived underground in Alaska. It gets cold. Um, living on a small island, Spruce Island, right off the coast of Kodiak. And a Russian ship came to port, and the captain invited him to come to dinner on the ship. So all the officers of the ship were around him, and St. Herman was there. And St. Herman asked them, what do you love most in your life? What do you love most? What do you want? What would you want to have? And as they went around the table, the men said, "I, I want a beautiful wife. I want money. I want a ship like this that I might be captain of one day. And... As they all went around, St. Herman said, is there anything more worthy of love than our Lord Jesus Christ? He created us, adorned us, gave life to all, supports all, nourishes and loves all. He himself is love and more excellent than any other person on earth. Shouldn't a person love God above all and yearn for him more than anything else? And all the men started to say, well, that's obvious. Of course, that's what I meant to say. LAUGHTER And St. Herman then said, And do you love God? And the men said, Of course, of course we love God. And St. Herman said, As for me, I am a sinner, and for more than 40 years I've been trying to love God, but I can't say that I love him completely. For if we love someone, we always think about him. We strive to please him. Day and night our heart is occupied with, with pleasing him. Is that how it is for you gentlemen? Do you love God? Do you keep turning to Him? Do you always think of Him? Do you always pray to Him and always fulfill His holy commandments? The men had to admit that by that standard, they they did not love God either. St. Herman said, for our good, for our happiness, let us at least make a promise to ourselves that from this day, from this hour, from this very moment, we will strive to love God above everything else and fulfill his holy will. Thanks, Peter God. Thank you. Um. Oh, thanks, everybody. So I think now, let's see, I've got a word from Sylvia here. <laughs> um, we will have a refreshment break and small group discussions. Um, everyone's invited to discuss the same focus questions. Have you tried praying the Jesus Prayer? What about it has been beneficial and what about it has been challenging?